Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. In 2018, a new book came out from Wisdom Publications titled Relational Mindfulness by the Zen teacher Deborah Eden Tull. I was thrilled to have the opportunity to chat with her about her wide-ranging handbook for how to be more connected to each present moment in episode number 72. As with many guests, Eden and I kept in touch in the weeks since our conversation because there is always so much more to talk about than we can fit into a single episode. As the weeks went past, she told me about a project she has been developing that has manifested in a new online course she is teaching in the 2019 new year. As a K-12 classroom and online teacher myself, I am constantly curious about how other teachers, whether they be in schools or in other educational areas, such as spiritual practice, approach their own teaching. Today, Eden and I discuss and explore her upcoming class, which you can take as a student. Today's episode introduces the teachings of Deborah Eden Tull and her path to becoming a Zen teacher. We talk about her teaching style and her influences and how she builds relationships with her students. We also discuss the purpose of her new seven-week course, Threshold to Freedom, a seven-step journey to mindful self-renewal, fierce compassion, and conscious intentions. The course will occur via the Shift Network, home to other online courses by teachers I admire, such as Ramdas, Mirabai Star, and Matthew Fox. Before committing to the class, though, you can RSVP for a free one-hour event with Deborah Eden Tull titled Stop Trying to Fix Yourself. This one-hour live Q&A video conference will take place on December 1st at 10 a.m. Pacific Time or 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. There, Deborah Eden Tull will answer any questions you have about the show. To view and sign up for the live Q&A with Deborah Eden Tull, please click the affiliate link in the show notes on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash classical ideas podcast or on my Twitter link at classical underscore ideas. I wish podcasting were free, but it isn't. And using my affiliate link will go directly to supporting the classical ideas podcast and will go to support a fantastic teacher, Deborah Eden Tull. The course is open to all, regardless of your meditation experience, and you can sign up for the course, and the course is titled again, Threshold to Freedom, a seven-step journey to mindful self-renewal, fierce compassion, and conscious intentions. Registration for the course is open now through January 8th. Please use the affiliate link. If you've ever wanted to see how meditation practice and working with a teacher can help you in your life, this course is a great opportunity with someone I've enjoyed having on this show now for the second time. 
Deborah Eden Toll is the founder of Mindful Living Revolution. She is a Zen meditation and mindfulness teacher, public speaker, author, activist, and sustainability educator. She trained for seven years as a Buddhist monk at a silent Zen monastery in Northern California, and she has been traveling to, living in, or teaching about conscious, sustainable communities internationally for the last 25 years. She is the author of two books, The Natural Kitchen, which came out in 2010, and Relational Mindfulness, a handbook for deepening our connection with ourselves, each other, and the planet. As I mentioned, that book came out earlier this year. She lives in North Carolina and offers retreats, workshops, now online classes, and consultations nationally. Please enjoy my conversation with Deborah Eden Tull. Deborah Eden Tull, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me back. Really happy to be here, Greg. So to set the stage for the listener, I'm hoping that you can tell me how you came to Zen practice and sort of your path as a spiritual teacher. Sure. Um, As a young person, uh, as I looked around at the state of our world, I had a lot of examples of how greed, hate, and delusion uh, were impacting the world that I was inheriting and also a lot of examples of uh, love, beauty, um, people really modeling kindness and good-heartedness. And so at a pretty young age, I just became curious about uh, what helps people to nourish and nurture our inherent goodness, and how do we work with uh, ego, with egocentricity, with the forces of greed, hate, and delusion that are pretty pervasive in our society. Just after high school, I got to attend my first meditation retreat, and my first retreat was a 10-day Vipassana retreat. It made it a huge, huge impact on me to spend 10 days in silence, both to be given a, an invitation to be in spacious awareness for an extended period of time. It felt like the most healing experience I could have called in then. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of, personally, uh, grief from losing loved ones, uh, from experiencing the death of those I was close to, and just grief from inheriting a tumultuous world. And I was very passionate about sustainability and social justice from a young age. So for me, getting to go on retreat gave me the space to to sit with uh, life in a way that felt profoundly helpful and also to begin to see how my own mind operated much more subtly in such a way that I could finally begin to have a choice and to step back from the conditioned mind or the mind of separation, we could call it. So from that retreat, I was hooked, and I already had had some models in my life of um, people on the spiritual path. Uh, Even my father had a strong contemplative Christian path, and how he moved through the world impacted me deeply uh, in my life. And so from that point, I just took on a daily meditation practice, so much of establishing practice. It's not about... uh, Though it can start this way, reading uh, 
books that help you to understand the practice. It's about embodiment. So cultivating a daily practice. That's what really changed my life. And somewhere along the way, uh, Zen came to me and the Zen teachings felt so simple and pure. And I spent a couple of years in my early 20s living at a traditional Zen center and then was called to work with a teacher who I worked with for many, many years at a Zen Buddhist monastery. So I became a monastic for seven and a half years. And while I never foresaw making that choice, uh, it really responded to so much of what I was seeking and really who I already was. It was an invitation to study life in the moment uh, and through one's experience and to learn how to be intimate with all of life, uh, beginning within ourselves. So that's a little bit about how it how it began. Uh, while at the monastery, I was um, asked to begin to facilitate others, to begin to teach, and that set off a whole other phase and evolution in my practice, which is the practice of teaching. And I feel like through that invitation, I began to come much more deeply into myself and my purpose here. So thank you for the question. Did you ever um, struggle with the decision to actually go into teaching? Were, were you resistant to it? Were you open to it? Because teaching takes the responsibility to another whole level. It takes the responsibility to a whole other level. You are right. And um, I did not begin practicing to become a teacher. I simply fell in love with the practice, and I, I fell in love with the process of practice. And it was also difficult for me. You know, it stirs up everything. It's a, it's a process of courage and willingness and continual growth. So when I was first asked, uh, I was feeling a bit uh, both resistant and afraid. But in my heart, I felt a huge uh, yes and a gratitude to be able to support others. And um, it is interesting because today there's something happening in our world where there's sort of a uh, romantic, holding the teacher in kind of a romantic form and kind of an idealization, the teacher. There's this sort of spiritual teacher celebrity thing going on. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't find it helpful or authentic. It also creates kind of a sense for people that, oh, I, I should become a teacher or that's something to do um, to make something of myself. And it's not, it's absolutely not. It's a, it's a tremendous responsibility. Some people um, are called to be teachers. That's what their soul is here for. And others not, just to have a practice is enough, just to live your practice is more than enough medicine for the world. So I think we're at an interesting place in terms of how we perceive teaching. Yeah, so as, yeah. A, as, we, as you know from our first conversation together, I'm a teacher, I'm a classroom teacher, and I have prided myself, um, and many teachers do, on doing whatever we possibly can to learn from other teachers so that we can amend our practices to sort of like get at the heart of good teaching and good methods in teaching. So it's like a lifelong process of improvement for classroom educators who take it seriously. 
And that can extend into any kind of teaching. You've had many teachers and you've now been a teacher for a while. And you have your own form of like the classroom. So thinking about your pedagogy, your teaching, I'm curious what the term good teaching means to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, first, I will just affirm from my conversations with you that I know that you are a good teacher. I know that because you are uh, passionate and engaged and humble and creative, uh, very generous with what you do for your students. And when I reflect on it, um, generosity is a really important quality for a good teacher. Generosity of spirit, and that includes being willing to put the self aside, to put the ego aside. In the case of what I do, because I teach Zen and I teach mindfulness, it's so much about letting myself become an empty vessel so that I can really, truly meet whomever I'm with from the essence of deep listening, from the uh, right here with you, not holding my own agenda or sense of where you need to go, but listening in the deepest sense so that I can see clearly and help you to see clearly. Um, So generosity is a big quality. Embodiment is a really important quality. And, you know, for me, labels have never meant much. And there, there are a lot of people in our world right now kind of attached to labels and got this certification or that or whatever. Embodiment is something that just can't be faked. Uh, someone who truly embodies their practice, someone who is um, completely committed to being a student and learning for the rest of their life and being humble at the same time as being willing to carry the responsibility of being a teacher and guiding others. Um, Another really important quality for me is um, simply a willingness to love unconditionally. And that means I'm in continual practice with loving myself unconditionally and always deepening in what that is and bringing unconditional love to whomever I'm with and helping them to know that within themselves, to graduate from the myth of conditional love, parts of us are worthy and parts of us are not, that's pretty pervasive in our society. So that's a few elements that are important to me. Yeah. So if I came to you as a new teacher... Uh, or is I, if I came to you as a new student, so just like any student, I probably will come to you with possibly some of my own goals. So whenever you meet new students for the first time, what are you, do you have like a process for how you um, get to know that student? Like what do you do like the first couple of days within it, with a new student? Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that's a good question. Whether I'm working with someone one-on-one or where I'm working with someone in a retreat setting or an online course, uh, I begin by simply generously inviting whoever that is into deeper and deeper presence, just letting them transition and step away from some of the habit patterns, the distraction of the external world, and really turn their attention within, allowing us to turn our attention within together so that we can drop into presence, 
so that we can do the work of compassionate awareness and mindful inquiry, which is only possible through presence. So <laughs> for yeah. many people, just just that beginning is a profound experience because then they're then learning how to invite themselves into that space. Or if they've had a long-term meditation practice and they're calling upon me to go deeper, uh, how to deepen that space. And from there, we can we can do the work. And again, I mentioned deep listening earlier. So, you know, I will have the uh, hope of helping this person to uh, become freer, to become free from their conditioned beliefs, from their limiting beliefs, from their um, kind of clung to identity. And um, it's important for me to not have an agenda about how we get there, but to simply let presence and the shared field of presence um, guide us there. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, uh, all teachers bring their past into their teaching and we've all seen teaching our whole lives whether it be your kindergarten art teacher your university professor your priest or pastor etc so thinking about all of your past teachers whether they be buddhist teachers k-12 through college uh, bosses at jobs anything like that who are some of your role model teachers that you've looked up to over the years Well, the first person who comes to mind is my my sixth grade teacher. I had an incredible sixth grade teacher, Janet Alcorn, who I am still in touch with today. Uh, And in sixth grade, I was going through um, the loss of my father. My father found out one day that he had one month left to live. And uh, this teacher, Janet Alcorn, was so... uh, present and compassionate and she too had experienced the loss of her father at a young age and honestly for me as a young person uh, dealing with the avalanche of impermanence for the first time uh, in a world that doesn't really know how to work with grief and loss gracefully it was like I have tears coming up right now it was so so meaningful for me to have someone who is really willing to be with and to witness me compassionately through that experience. And it's interesting because so much of what is important to me today as a teacher is being with and being a compassionate witness and guide to others. So that that comes to mind strongly. And I've had so many amazing teachers. Um, Joanna Macy has been a teacher for a long time and her um, passion and her balance of Uh, having her feet rooted in the gravity of our world while dancing with lightheartedness and playfulness and passion at the same time. That's been really, really meaningful for me. I've had a lot of, especially I would say, female teachers who have helped me to find my feminine voice and my true feminine voice, uh, for instance, in the context of Buddhism, which is still um, a male-dominated world, we could say. And so I, I feel a lot of gratitude to the courageous women who have guided me and taught me uh, courage and authenticity over the years. Those are two incredibly valuable qualities to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you said a term that jumped out at me, and I even wrote it down here on my sheet of paper, the avalanche of impermanence. 
Do you find that a lot of your students come to you recognizing the avalanche of impermanence for the first time? Like, do you see that as something that brings more people to the path and to a contemplative life? Absolutely. Yes, Um, I do. Because for some people, we're going along in this experience of life sort of under the illusion of control or the illusion of sameness or the illusion that there's uh, time to waste so we can actually numb out to life or lead a mediocre life or things like this. Uh, The reminder of impermanence in whatever form it comes, and it comes for everyone, it's part of being human, is a a beautiful wake-up call and invitation. It shakes things up. It sometimes comes more dramatically and pulls out the entire ground from underneath us through a series of losses or changes. Maybe it's just the experience that, oh, I'm getting older, and I didn't realize I knew this was going to happen, but the actual experience of it is shocking, and uh, I need to to look at this. But whatever it is, um, from my perspective, it's an absolute gift because it helps to wake us up to the immediacy of this life. It helps us to remember and to get that this life is short and that we have an invitation to wake up uh, in the time that we're here. You know, I mentioned losing my dad when I was young, and that, for me, completely set the tone for how I lived the rest of my life. And there is a a way in which I'm incredibly grateful for getting it at a young age, getting impermanence. So, yeah. yeah. How how old was your dad when he passed away? He was 42. Okay, because you're talking to me two days before my 35th birthday. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And so... These are the, all of those things that you mentioned about learning in the moment, like, oh, wow, this is interesting. I'm getting older, and I never really considered that that would actually happen. Um, that's something that is uh, flitting through my mind the last couple of days. So thanks for the reminder. Yeah, yeah. And I'll just add, you know, one of the things I know we're going to talk about today is this um, New Year's conscious intentions process that I guide people in every year and it's really inspired by the realization of impermanence and so every year of my life or we're in November now just entering that uh, busy holiday season like Mm. how did we get here and uh, the year begins to become more uh, reflective as we meet the end of the year and for me there's just such a, a rich invitation with the threshold of a new year through a particular process of mindful and compassionate self-reflection and harvesting from the lessons of the last year to really not take a new year casually, to really let it be a huge growth opportunity for us. So let's talk about your seven-week online course that you have coming up. It starts (laughs) right around the turn of the new year, correct? Yes, uh, it will begin January 8th um, and run for seven weeks with the Shift Network. Excellent. And so this course is for people from all walks of life, both meditators and non-meditators, correct? Yes. Everyone is welcome. Awesome. Okay. So uh, you told me earlier that the course is about sort of review, release, and renewing our intentions. And I want for you to tell me about the course and why this course is important for you as the teacher. Sure, sure. So The uh, title of the course is Threshold to Freedom, a seven-step journey for mindful self-renewal, fierce compassion, and conscious intentions. And uh, the course comes from a 
retreat that I've guided for many, many years and a process that I've done within myself for many, many years uh, over the new year. And I absolutely love it. Uh, my students love it. I would not begin a new year without it, especially when I reflect on just where we are collectively right now. This past year, in addition to what so many people are working with individually, um, has been collectively so traumatic. And so yes. the invitation really for renewal and conscious, powerful intentions and grounding ourselves more fully in powerful presence um, that's really, really important to me. So one thing I'll say about it is that, you know, when I was young, I was taught the process of setting uh, New Year's resolutions every January. Mm -hmm. And pretty much for me, that meant, okay, this is a, a time <laughs> to uh, kind of look at myself with some judgment and criticism, see <laughs> if I could fix or solve or change myself, right? Yeah. And finally, you know, set a goal that's going to, fix this person once and for all. And maybe I would uh, run with that new resolution for a period of time and then it would peter <laughs> out or it would run me down or whatever. So this is very, very different. I don't believe in uh, the myth of self-improvement. Uh, I believe in learning how to see ourselves clearly, crystal clear, and learning how to work with ourselves in compassionate rather than adversarial ways, um, learning how to, in the larger context, I could say it's learning how to work with rather than against nature, which is how we see long-term change rather mm. than to fix and solve and improve ourselves and perpetuate that lens, right? Right. Wrong. Yeah. 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 So you told me about the adversarial nature of um, New Year's resolutions and how we almost turn ourselves into sort of like our own enemy. And then you just said the myth of self-improvement, which comes about each new year with uh, New Year's resolutions. And I'm curious if you see New Year's resolutions and the myth of self-improvement as sort of slowing people down on a spiritual path or how it can block us from actual progress. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah. Thank you. Um whether we're talking about uh, the new year, New Year's resolutions, whether we're just talking about spiritual practice, um, I like to say that real practice doesn't begin until we kind of drop our reasons for practicing, until we drop self-improvement. So many people come even to meditation for the notion of, oh, there's, there's something I've got to fix in myself. I have a really busy mind. Uh, I get stressed out. I need to solve this in myself. Um, and that does actually slow us down. It can serve us in coming to the practice, but then we actually need to address that part of our mind that's standing outside of us, looking in and constantly assessing ourselves to drop into even more wholehearted presence for our practice to go deeper. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I'm, it reminds yeah. me of something. I'm reading a book right now by an author named Chris Grosso, and he has a book about addiction that I'm reading at the moment. And in the book, he constantly says that he sort of needed to get out of his own way. Does that, yeah. does that sort of ring true with what you're saying about this uh, myth of self-improvement about getting out of our own way? It, it rings true so loudly, yes, <laughs> getting out of our own way. Um, and one of the things that happens the more that we get out of our own way 
is that we get to drop more fully into real genuine acceptance, real genuine acceptance. And again, I'm going to use the phrase seeing ourselves more clearly. We get to, uh, I would say, fall in love with the extraordinary nature of ordinary self. And then from the place that, oh, I'm not damaged or missing something or needing to be solved, then we can look kindly and wisely within ourselves. How can I support, let's say, if there's a difficult habit pattern that I, an addiction that I keep seeming to choose, how can I support this being now that I'm seeing this being more clearly in moving beyond this habit pattern? How can I uh, bring in a element or develop a talent that I really want to develop, but not again from a sense of fixing or solving? I, yeah. under I understand. So um, self-discipline also matters, though, as well. So could you talk a little bit about the role of like compassionate self-discipline in creating a long-term sustainable change? Yes. I am passionate about compassionate self-discipline. Um, and first, I would say people have a funny notion of acceptance sometimes that it means resignation. Like they hold this duality that either I can accept myself as I am and that means nothing's going to ever evolve in me or I can kind of whip myself into improvement. And people also have some confusion around discipline. A lot of us in the culture I grew up in were taught kind of this duality of um, either like laziness or this kind of uh, forceful discipline. And they go back and forth between one of those two things. So compassionate self-discipline is a really different place. It's sustainable self-discipline. It's learning how to uh, show up for ourselves again and again and again, learning how to support ourselves to make the conscious choice. Uh, and a lot of this comes through learning how to deeply listen rather than shallowly listening to our minds and thus believing our thoughts and just letting them guide us. So it's a, a spiritual discipline and it's an enjoyable discipline. And it's a, a discipline of love. How can I, uh, for instance, if, even if it's something so basic as um, exercising and strengthening my exercise program? How can I do so with wisdom, being really, really kind to my body um, and challenging my body rather than being forceful? Uh, it's a, a beautiful wisdom to learn, compassionate self-discipline. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, if somebody has super high expectations, like they haven't run in a year and then they say, well, I can't run a marathon today, so I might as well never even try. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does um does fear play a role in any of this? Like, how can people work with their fears or resistance? Is there like seeding new intentions and deepening their practice? Yeah, well, we are uh, all invited to work with fear and resistance if we are going to cultivate and deepen a practice. Uh, it's it's going to come up, and so this also requires compassionate self discipline, really being willing to for instance, for resistance, not judge the resistance, not believe the story that might say, oh, my resistance is getting in the way, I must be a bad person, or it's going to overcome me. Just bringing curiosity, which is the practice, and inquiry, which is the practice, to our resistance. Uh, letting it be there when it's there, but not letting it be in the driver's seat. And that's part of the shift that happens. 
and then it begins to dissipate because we're understanding more who's resistant. Well, ego is resistant. And we might say we want freedom. We might say we want love. We want connection. Ego actually doesn't. <laughs> and so we just discern, oh, but I'm not my ego. So it all becomes a lot more clear. And fear is, is similar. Um, I've worked a lot with fear over the years of my practice. And um, I would say that for me, it was learning to not judge the fear and not think I needed to uh, kind of push past the fear into this uh, idea of courage I used to have. It was about learning to um, see clearly the fear, learning how to hold hands with the part of me who's afraid, and then um, seeing how to work with that part in a kind way. And from that practice, tremendous courage was uh, accessed for me. And I consider myself a, a wildly courageous person today because of that. Yeah, this is... Um this is deep stuff, and all of the things that you're saying, I think, would resonate with every person differently based on what's going on inside of all of us. So yeah. it doesn't look the same for any person, which is which is hard for you because you're the teacher. So that's that makes your job even tougher because you have to navigate every single person's internal thoughts and goals and feelings and ideas and their own resistance and the things that they have conflict over. It's... Uh, it's heavy. You know, it, it could sound like it's hard for me, but it's it's not so hard because we're all human and there are just certain ways that humans operate, even though, let's say, fear will arise differently in me with different content than it would for you. And compassion um, works the same way for all of us. And uh, courage is needed medicine for all of us. So it's simpler than it sounds, but it's part of my job is to, whether I'm working with individuals or with a group of individuals, to be getting to tune into uh, each individual's makeup so I can help that person see what they can't yet see, see their blind spots, right? I love it. Yeah. So as a, as a teacher, I'm, I'm a planner and I'm constantly thinking about uh, a few weeks ahead and the lessons that are coming up. And I'm curious if you can talk to me kind of about the nuts and the bolts of the class. So it's seven weeks long. I'm curious if you can tell me what a normal class is like in your uh, upcoming online class. Sure. Um, so the, the Shift Network is wonderful. They have really uh, strong, solid structure and technology. And in each class, uh, we will have um, an hour and a half with me and then time where Students will get to connect uh, with each other in more of a relational, mindfulness, conversational way. And in the time with me, there will be a guided practice. Every class will start with a centering and then a guided practice. There will be a Dharma teaching, and each class has different themes. There will be exercises that I'm guiding people through. It's really important that Everyone's supported to do their own work and to integrate whatever I'm talking about specifically into their life and their intentions process. Um, and we will also have plenty of time for personal questions. So it's interesting because I think the first time I was invited to teach online, I was a, a bit resistant. I love uh, 
the human connection and I love uh, the field of retreat, for instance. And yet I found that it was absolutely intimate and that it was just as dropped in because it's a transmission that happens through teaching. And when we all meditate together, even from different parts of the world and all settle into deep listening together, there is a, a field that is created, in my experience, even in the online form. It's pretty neat. I've been to a few um, Zen talks over the past few months, and the topic of online sanghas has come up. And I'm also in a Facebook group called American Zen. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's a sangha. Um, there's a lot of really deep and thorough, comprehensive discussion about Zen in the group. And I know that you just said that you have found it to be really interesting and useful. So how does the in-person sangha sort of differ from the online sangha? Like, can you truly study Buddhism in an online sangha? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, that's a good question. And I think um, I'll speak to it indirectly. Sangha is a really important part of the process of waking up, having community. Uh, Kalyanamita is the phrase for spiritual friendship, having spiritual friends who can witness you, who can be mirrors for you, who can really hold the structure of practice, who can um, help to model compassionate self-discipline, for instance, as you are learning that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's so it's really neat to have that in person. And I've deeply benefited from having that in person in my life. And at the same time, I think it's amazing that we can access so many different um, teachers in different parts of the world now online. I've, I've had extraordinarily beautiful moments realizing that I'm teaching online with people from um, 15 different countries and that that's unique, that's meaningful. And I think that um, there are so many different life circumstances that sometimes make uh, it very helpful to have access to online uh, learning, online sangha. And so I'd say I think that both are important. I think that both have their place. You know, in the past number of years, and this is unique, I think, for a Dharma teacher, but I've moved around quite a bit as my uh, partner and I have been seeking our home, our place to settle. And so it's interesting because I have different communities um, where I've taught for a long time, and I have a global community um, that I absolutely love, that I access through uh, online exchanges, many of people whom I've never even met. And also, um, there are people who find it useful to get to practice more from their home. Um, Over the years of my practice, one of the things I've worked with is uh, health, uh, having been bit by a tick and conceiving Lyme when I was a monastic and I can't tell you how many times I've been grateful as I was going through that healing process to get to access all the support I needed without um, uh, stretching my body to to travel when it didn't need to. Does that I, make sense? Absolutely. I love um, the, the, the healing and the restorative and the growth behind all the things that you're saying. And it reminds me a lot of our discussion that we had about your book, relational mindfulness i'm curious if um people pick up the book relational mindfulness how the book connects with the course because your book is still really new it's only a few months old 
Yes, yes. It came out in May, and um, it's called Relational Mindfulness, a handbook for deepening our connection with ourselves, each other, and our planet. And this seven-week course with the Shift Network, uh, will be we will be using the principles of relational mindfulness uh, continually as we go. So at first we'll be applying those principles, which are all teachings that come from the depth of sitting meditation to our relationship with ourselves, helping us to make our practice deeper and more embodied. And then we'll also be working with um, applying those principles to our relationships with others. And in the final module, uh, how they apply to the state of the world. And I'll just say that it's been so heartening to see the response to these teachings so far. Uh, People from all different walks of life, people from so many different parts of the world, I've gotten to hear from. um, I've gotten to share the teachings in many different contexts, and I'm really inspired by how much people are ripe and ready to take them on to see how they show up transformed to see their relationships change, uh, dynamics in the workplace, dynamics in their activist life. It's it's really fun. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, it resonates, too, because, you know, just to throw a little bit of statistics at you, I have 80 episodes of this podcast out, and your episode is in the top five. Mm-hmm. of download mm-hmm. totals. So like people are people are latching on to the ideas and the teachings. Well, it's it's medicine that we're really hungry for now. The process itself is actually simpler than we think, but part of what we're being asked to do is to heal the myth of separation and it's pervasive in our culture. We can see that there's a hole in the fabric of human relationship. Uh, we can see it uh, globally right now. And so I think all of what we're seeing out there is helping people to access their willingness and their courage to open to a different way of being. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who would you invite to take the course with you coming up in the new year? Oh, honestly, everyone. This is for people of, of all walks of life. But I will say, I was just talking with some of my students about this. You know, for anyone who feels like um, the invitation to really meet the new year consciously and in a reflective way and to use the opportunity, the threshold of the new year to uh, continue or to begin to transform their life, to go deep. You have so much support over seven weeks of working with me for uh, an hour and a half to two hours each time. Um, There will be a lot of at-home practice given as well because we're really using our daily life as a laboratory in zen practice anyway it's for people who might be new to meditation and people who might have been meditating for years that's what i love about this work you can meet it from where you are and you will go deeper um, depending on where you are and so i would also say that anyone who feels a little bit um drained or down about the state of the world It's been an intense year right now. I'm still um, feeling tenderness uh, and some shock around the fires in California where I'm from. So many loved ones who have been uh, impacted and so many people who have lost their homes. And so I just know that collectively right now, I'm excited to get together with a community of people choosing consciousness, choosing courage, choosing willingness and to, to know that we're doing this work of setting conscious intention 
for ourselves individually and for our world at large. It is our offering to our world at large in a time that's really saying, hey, um, are you willing to wake up and can we together engage in some medicine making that is much needed? I saw in your newsletter that mm-hmm. you have a free question and answer call about the course on December 6th. Yes, but the date has been changed to December 1st. December 1st. Okay, great. So tell people how to first sign up for your newsletter and B, tell me about the Q&A call on December 1st. Sure. Um you can sign up for my newsletter on my website, which is com, and you can also access further teachings on my website. You can sign up for this free video interview call, which is December 1st, 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time with the Shift Network. I believe... Um, Right on your site, Greg, um, there will be a link above this podcast. Is that so? Yeah, there will be a link in the show notes for how to access the course. And it will also be available on my social media at classical underscore ideas on Twitter and the classical ideas Facebook page as well. Great. And again, this call is called Stop Trying to Fix Yourself overcome the myth of self-improvement and discover the keys to mindful self-renewal. Really knowing that so many of us are, um, are in need of self-renewal now. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah. Well, Eden, yeah. this has been an awesome conversation. Um, I'm hoping to help you get some people excited about the class. There will be links available in the show notes for signing up for the class. They will be on my Facebook and on my Twitter page. Um, and, are there are there any, are there any other places where people should look um, as far as like the sh- finding the shift network? Um, the details will be for registration for this course. I believe that opens December third, and so if you want to first just come to the call on the first, that's um, that would be very useful. So details will be on my website, on the Shift Network's website, and uh, I certainly hope you can join me. Yeah. Excellent. Well, people, yeah. put a put a reminder in your phones and on your electronic calendars to send you an alert signal on December 1st for the 10 a.m. Q&A call with Deborah Eden Toll to talk about the new online class in the new year. Eden, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome, and thank you, Greg. It's really been wonderful to connect again. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.